Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Sit Down with Sid podcast. This is episode number 11. Our guest today is a living legend among gin players and professional gamblers. He is one of the best gin rummy players in the world and has been nicknamed the God of Gin Rummy. That being said, it is my pleasure to welcome Michael Saul. Hi, Michael. How are you, Sid? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast, you know. I'm glad to be here. Great. Uh, so, Michael, before we kind of get into the uh, nitty gritty of the podcast, would you take a couple of minutes to explain to our audience a little bit about your background and so forth? Well, uh, uh, one minute history. I, uh, When I was young, I hung around pool rooms, uh, which is all gambling that's what pool rooms are all about and uh i went in the army i and from there uh i quit high school i got a college uh, degree though i was able to take a test in the army that qualified me for a, a high school diploma and then college and after college, I went to law school for lack of any direction. And the club opened up in the Philadelphia area where I was raised that had the wealthiest guys in Philadelphia and uh, all self-made guys. And it was all men. Men act differently in an all-male environment than they do at a normal country club. And uh, the gambling was beyond belief. And I happened to know someone who was a golfer, a member of the club. He got me in and I began making more money than I could count than I thought existed. My gambling background from uh, the pool room equipped me, even though I didn't know the games, the three games were golf, gin, rummy, and backgammon. Uh, I learned them quickly. I made it my business to play in other games, cheap games where I would learn. And from there, I got to know these guys. They became friends. They were 20 years my senior. And they loved to talk about their businesses. I loved to listen. I was like a sponge. I would constantly uh, ask them questions. And I feel like I got an education in business better than many people get at Wharton. Uh, these were the guys who actually did it, not academics who watched it being done. Mm -hmm. So from there, uh, I began lending money. And uh, from lending money, people came to me with deals that uh, didn't qualify for lending, but I liked the business plan or idea. Mm -hmm. And I ended up investing in the businesses. And now I don't do any lending. It's all equity, some publicly traded securities, a lot of private stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I never gave up the gambling. You know, it's a seductive mistress to be able to get up in the morning when you want go play golf have dinner at a restaurant with a bunch of friends mm -hmm. i mean it's a lifestyle that uh, you can only dream about but it's limiting in how much you can make 
So, so Michael, now you said that you were around the pool pool halls in in Philadelphia. Now, how did the love of uh, especially playing gin rummy came about? Was it the uh, attraction of making more money, or was it you tried and you you kind of liked the game? How did that you know love came well, about? When I when I went to this club, uh, I learned backgammon first, but. Mm -hmm. And I knew, you know, I played a little golf. I wasn't very good, but but I saw that uh, for every backgammon player at the club, there were 10 gin rummy players. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was, I should learn. I mean, there was opportunity there. I knew I could learn well enough mm -hmm. to, to beat the, the players there. They weren't professionals. They were mm -hmm. business people mm -hmm. doing it for entertainment mm -hmm. uh, so I focused on it but I, uh, although I was a consistent winner there and when I went to New York and started playing in New York when I wrote my book I elevated my game uh, by three four five levels mm-hmm the reason was I thought through every detail. I didn't want to make any mistakes. And I realized mm -hmm. many of the things I was doing were wrong. Mm -hmm. And I figured out what was right. So, I mean, if, and I might've been the best player in the world, I don't know, but whatever I was, I was that much better after writing the book. That was over 20 years ago that I mm -hmm. wrote it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, uh, you know, my one loss record, I guess, tends to confirm my rating. So, I mean, I, I know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, your book, uh, the it was uh, uh, Jin Rummy, A Predator's Guide. I think you had all around 1,100 copies and you were all sold out because... I am unable to find anywhere online now. Yeah, they sold out. Now I had his second printing. And they've been selling pretty well, uh, in part because of, say, a pod couple of podcasts I was on like yours. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are far-reaching communication tools. Right. And, and they've just, you know, I've gotten people from all over the world. So, so do you have any more copies coming out or are you in the midst of oh, writing? Yeah, no, no. Well, not a new edition, but I have, I printed another thousand copies. So, uh, And then Michael, where can people find that? Because we are unable to locate that online. Uh, just to email me at okay. mikestall at yahoo.com. Okay. All right. So we'll put that information in the description below. So, so Michael, let me ask you now, at the age of 18, you ended up going to the army, right? The reason I bring this question up is because I follow a lot of entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs like yourself. And most of them went into the army because they didn't have a purpose or direction in life. And they have stated that if you want to get your life straight, go to army. Is that, do you agree with that? And how much did that play a role in your life? In my case, uh, that is the gospel. 
When I was in the pool room, I was living out on the street. I'd left my parents' house when I was 15. I was making my living hustling pool. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I was a slob. I never completed cycles. My ethical uh, standards were uh, lax, to say the least. Uh, I I just had no direction. Most of the people I was hanging around ended up in jail or uh, certainly didn't do very well in life. But Vietnam was going on and. Mm -hmm. If I had been drafted and I was ripe for the draft, I mean, there were exemptions if you were married, if you were in college or whatnot, I was none of the above. So mm -hmm. I knew I would be drafted on or near my 18th birthday. So mm -hmm. when I was 17, just I, I joined a reserve unit, which gave me less of a chance of going to Vietnam. And uh it was nothing short of phenomenal the discipline uh the organizational demands everything about it was new to me but it was the things i specifically needed mm -hmm. and although i hated it i hate the discipline i hated being told what to do mm -hmm. In retrospect, it changed my life. Uh, I was not consciously going in for that reason. It never even occurred to me. Mm -hmm. But coming out, I realized I began completing cycles. I, uh, Sorry. I, I learned to organize. My ethical standards changed dramatically. I realized the, the terrible... Uh, outlook I had. And uh, I mean, it was life changing. I, I had a couple of personal epiphanies, which I can almost maybe relate to the army. I mean, I realized, you know, I've been uh, uh, an expert at making excuses for failure. And I was really good at it. My parents, this, that, I mean, you know, I had a whole potpourri of of excuses and I was good at it. But at some point during the army, I realized the world doesn't care why you failed. Mm -hmm. world, I mean, they may have empathy, sympathy and whatnot, but the only thing they care about is who you are and where you are. Got and it. so the notion of excuses or finding reasons, exploring the reasons for failure, is not only useless, but in oftentimes a destructive exercise. Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say that I feel like that set me free, that realization. Because now I was looking at the world, hey, what I accomplish is all the counts. Why I got there, how I got there, it's meaningless. Got it. Uh, so, Michael, I know that uh, in in Philadelphia, when you were gambling, you were making a lot of money. And then at some point of time, you decided to come to New York City. And uh, I think it took a while for big gamblers to note, hey, there is this kid from Philadelphia named Michael Saul, who is actually better than us. Do you want to give us like a like a synopsis of how that story unfolded? Like, how did you end up coming to New York and then settling down here? 
Well, uh, a friend of mine from Squires was a men's club I belonged to in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. He used to come to New York and he played at a backgammon club with a guy Tim Holland mm -hmm. uh, owned. And Tim closed the club, but his manager, Louise Goldsmith, asked my friend she to put up money. She wanted to open a high-class backgammon club. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she wanted him to fund it. So he agreed. And they opened at 61st in Madison at the Carlton Hotel. They mm -hmm. rented two suites and combined them there. Um, and it, they had a dress code and whatnot. Anyway, he he said to me, about, I didn't even know he had done this. But about three or four months after he did it, he said, you know, Michael, we opened a backgammon club, but they're playing high stakes gin up there. Mm -hmm. so I went up and the first day I lost like $25,000 but I was actually giddy inside mm -hmm. uh, because I could see they were all cripples you know nobody knew what they were doing but but you know in New York uh well, I like that the, they believe all wisdom resides between the East River and the Hudson. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone else in the world is a brain. So this local yokel from Philadelphia comes up. I was winning every week, but they couldn't. It, it never occurred to them that I was a better player. Uh, finally, after about a year or more of just whacking them around, it dawned on them that, hey, this guy must be better than us. Of course, being New Yorkers with their inflated egos, right. they therefore had to crown me the best player in the world because who could beat a New Yorker? Well, obviously, it could only be the best player in the world. Right. I mean, that's just their, their mentality. So, uh, I mean, the crown, you know, it opened doors for me. I, I wore it. I'm not sure I deserved it, but, uh, mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, eventually, of course, I settled in here. I made a million friends and, uh, I learned to really love it. Great. So, so at, did at some point, was there any animosity? I mean, you know, you're coming from another state, you know, as you said, you know, playing with these big gamblers and they're like, what is it that Michael is winning every single week? I mean, there must be some kind of friction. Was there any kind of uh, friction? Yeah, but no greater than it, it was in any game I've been in, whether it's Miami, Philadelphia, uh, it doesn't matter. There's always, there's players who are there to enjoy themselves. They can afford it. And as long as it's pleasant, whether they win or lose is really unimportant. There's other players where winning is vitally important and they're, of course, always resentful of me. The But even among that group, there, a lot of them don't voice their objections mm -hmm. because they understand that if they object too loudly, they're going to be next on the hit list. Right. So, so, uh, but th 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 I didn't encounter anything in New York different from what I had encountered at a variety of other games. So, Michael, I have a question regarding the gambling aspect. Now, 
were you at any point scared of losing a lot of money? I mean, as you said, you came here first time, you lost 25 grand back in the day. That was a lot of money. But still, you were persistent. You believed in yourself and you made a name for yourself in this industry. Do you still have that fear or do you ever come across that fear? You know what? This is an addiction. This is gambling. I might lose it all. I make, no, might make it I all. never had even the slightest fear of losing. What I did have mm -hmm. a fear of, I mean, I just knew I could win. The percentages are going to will out over time and that nobody is can beat it. But my concern, and I would have sleepless nights, because, mm -hmm. you know, when I was in my early 30s, all I knew was gambling. I had no businesses. I had mm -hmm. no particular business skills. So I was fearful that the faucet could turn off at any second. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I would try to save 80% of what I made. And in fact, if I rarely had a losing week, but if mm. I had a losing week, I would stop spending money. I mean, I would just flat out, I'd make up for that loss through cutting my expenses. Now, as luck has had it, I was able to get into business. And so the gambling, you know, it used to be 99% of my income. Now it's 1%. It's, it's great you brought that point up because, as you said, at some point of time, that fossil can turn off and then all you knew was gambling, right? If you have no other skill set, that's why there are very few gamblers. There's a handful, mm -hmm. but most gamblers, no matter how skilled and whatnot, uh, eventually tap out. They go broke. Mm -hmm. uh, there's differences. I mean... The key to gambling isn't so much becoming a great player. It's it's social. You you if if people don't like being around you, mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to have games. And obviously, you can't win anything without games. Um, so, Michael, at one point you had also mentioned. I came across this. You said that you can make more money in New York City by accident. Uh, than you can make on purpose. Do you mind sharing your ideology behind that statement? Because well, you have to be the first uh, person that I've ever heard say that. When I first got here, um, I observed things going on, which Philadelphia, which is a big city, I associated with very wealthy people, you know, but what I saw here just left, made my jaw drop. I mean, a uh, hedge fund manager who I had, uh, I he got hold of me because he likes to play gin and he bought several copies of my books book to give to friends, invited me to the Robin Hood uh, fundraiser at the, mm -hmm. And and what I saw, I just couldn't believe. There must have been 200 tables, 100 at least, and 50,000 a table just to attend. Wow. My friend had put up 50,000, and there were eight or 10 seats, so he asked me if I wanted to join him. 
But that wasn't even it. They they did uh, a silent auction. Everything, you know, went for a half a million dollars or more. It had commercial value of near zero. Mm-hmm. People were bidding a quarter of a million for naming rights at a charter school classroom. Wow. And you tell they were just doing it for the fun of it they were throwing a quarter of a million a half a million in the pot just for laughs i mean i never saw anything like this i saw people who had their limited skills but found out early that mutual savings and loans were converting to stock companies and they I mean, these weren't geniuses, but they sent people all over the country putting $100 in every savings and loan they could so that the ones that converted, they got shares in the new company, which invariably, whatever they paid for the shares, without exception, when they began to trade, they traded 15, 20, 25% up. But I mean, I just saw saw money. It's like it would fall off trucks, and and uh, I guess it's partly the fabulous wealth here, mm-hmm. but it was also uh, maybe the attitude of people, the way they uh, spent money, or or you know, I knew billionaires in Philadelphia, but they were still frugal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know their habit, old habits die hard, and uh, but up here, you know, it was like uh, free for all. Wow, that's amazing! That's amazing. You know, I've never heard that statement, so I'm always like, now it's in my head. You know, I'm gonna keep that thing in my mind. You know, uh, Michael, I want to talk about the Molly's game. You know, uh, which was a kind of a federal indictment that happened against you, involved with a couple of Russian people. And at the end of the day, they, uh, uh, the trial and everything, correct me if I'm wrong, you actually, they had actually no proof of any wrongdoing against you. Uh, how did you, how did this all come about, you know, as, uh, you know, you had stated in different articles as well, that this was absolutely, you know, like, there was well, no basis on it, you know. A couple of Ukrainian guys walked into the club in New York when I was there. Right. And I took a liking to them. They were fresh off the boat. They had gambled in Ukraine. They knew how to get, they were actually good gamblers. But uh, unlike, you know, a lot of the Russian and Eastern European thuggery, they were, they were gentlemen. They acted like gentlemen. They knew, and they knew nothing about America. And over the next 10 years, you know, they'd come to me for advice in everything. Mm-hmm. So they were in a few different businesses with modest success, but they ended up meeting a lot of the oligarchs out of Ukraine and Russia. Got it. And they were booking soccer bets for these guys and eventually grew to where I don't know what they made 50, 100 million dollars. I mean, they made as they were booking. 500,000, a million dollar bets per game. And uh, I always believed what they were doing was legal because all their customers were in Eastern Europe or Monaco. 
Mm -hmm. So it's illegal to book bets in the United States unless you have a license. They had no license. But the fact that their customers were all offshore, I figured, you know, that how could that be illegal? Regardless, I wasn't involved in that part of their business. So they had numerous, uh, the Russian, Europe, Eastern Europe community is small. Mm-hmm. People knew about their success and they began coming to them for, for uh, investments. And they would approach me, ask me what I thought of this or that. And as luck would happen, it was a partly luck for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything I told them proved right. Now, they didn't listen to everything I said, but I, I explained to them the dynamics because I, I, I understand a lot of different businesses what the driving forces were. And so I created just a good track record with them. Now, they tell me they're giving a guy from uh, Japan who we knew, we all knew from the gambling community, a couple million dollars for his hedge fund. I said, that's funny. I said, I have 400,000 with him. I called him yesterday, told him I want my money out. Mm -hmm. And they asked why. And I said, because he claimed all his positions are hedged. But the volatility indicates if he's got head, either he's lying to me or Mm -hmm. the hedges are worthless. Either way, I don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. So a year later, the guy's up 37%. They made 740,000. And... Tony, one of them calls me on the phone. He's ribbing me. Yeah, Michael, it's really a big, I mean, they went through, they gave him the 2 million anyway. The first five days of the following year, he lost 95% of the money. Oh my gosh. All right. And at that point they had had it and they came to me and they said, look, all our deals will screen will filter through you Mm -hmm. any deal you want to do you approve we won't do anything you don't approve the ones you do approve will give you a third of Mm -hmm. but you have to guarantee a third of the loss if it loses money well think about that what that meant to me. That meant I was getting deal flow because some of the deals they got were good. Mm -hmm. I was getting a free carry for years. Mm -hmm. In other words, if the deal's trading down, it's only if it really uh, bottoms out, goes to zero, do I have to cough up my third Mm -hmm. so I can carry it for years. Right. I mean, my leverage is phenomenal. Right. And so, of course, I said yes. And we did extremely well. At one point, we must have had 40 million out on the street in, in a variety of different deals. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the, so when the government found out, they tapped their phone, found out they were booking these bets, they assumed that I was laundering money. All right. Well, 
I mean, they shoot first and ask questions later. There was never a nickel that was not accounted for in mm -hmm. an open and conventional business manner. And I mean, when I said to my lawyer, I said, well, when they find out, they'll drop the charges. He laughed out loud at my naivete. He said, the Southern District doesn't drop charges. Either you plead to something or you go to trial. That is, those are the only two outcomes. Michael, I have a question. I'm going to interrupt you and let you. Sure. How did how did you guys come into the light from SEC and like the Southern District? Like, you know, I mean, you were doing these deals. Is it the amount of the money that was flowing that caught their attention? The wires? Well, that and always the gets attention. There was a poker game which gained fame by Aaron Sorkin's movie, Molly's Game, in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. One of the players was a Russian guy that had Medicare clinics, which they were committing fraud. He was being investigated. His phone got tapped. As a result, they tapped Molly's phone, the woman who organized the game. Mm -hmm. uh, as a result, she spoke with one of the players in the game who uh, happened to be the son of my Ukrainian partner. They tapped his phone, and then as a result, they tapped his father's phone. Uh, and that's how they all of a sudden they hear these millions of dollars in bets. And of course, mm -hmm. it's a big attraction for any prosecutor. Uh, the funny thing was, they had 20 hours, they never tapped my phone, mm -hmm. but they had 20 hours of conversations with me and my Ukrainian partner. And there was not one word of any illegal activity or anything that could be construed as illegal. Uh, but of course, the prosecutor didn't listen to that. He read the notes. An FBI agent must take contemporaneous notes when a phone's being tapped. He has to listen live and take notes. So we got a copy of the notes, one conversation my friend's son called me and he said, Mike, I got a problem. He said, I got a check for $3 million I won from a guy, but he mm -hmm. gave me a 1099. So I said, well, pay the taxes. And he said, yeah, but I only won a million of it. Two million belong to partners. Got said, it. Well, send them the two million with 1099s for them. He said, okay, thank you and goodbye. You know what the contemporaneous notes the FBI agent wrote down? Tax fraud. Oh, wow. I mean, it was laughable. And I'm sure the prosecutor was, he only read the notes. He couldn't, he wasn't going to listen to 20 hours of my conversations. Right. Uh, so at the end of the day, they, I allocated, I had a choice. I could go to trial mm -hmm. and they would probably try and paint me. You know, the numbers were big, both our investments and the amount these guys were gambling for, although there was never any allegation even that I had anything to do with the gambling. 
uh, I could go to trial and risk the government taking everything I had, or I could allocute and say, which I did in court, that every investment was legal. The only motive for the investment was profit. But I knew that a portion of the money my partners invested came from illegal internet gambling, which it didn't. We made that up. But I had to be guilty of something in order mm -hmm. to get out of this. The curious thing is, in America, if you know that I'm making money illegally and mm -hmm. you do business with me, you're guilty of a felony. Correct. It's staggering, uh, but true. Wow. So, so I think so. You ended up paying some kind of uh, fine, and then you were I all got clear. Two years probation, two thousand dollar fine. Okay, so so I'm glad that it uh, worked out in your favor, and uh, you, know you know what? It was just another adventure in my life. No. So did did that kind of did that kind of uh, sway you away from like gambling a little bit? Was that a little scared? Or you were like, uh, there was never any concern with the type of gambling I do, Jin Rummy, backgammon, country club type gambling. No, nobody cares about that. There's nothing illegal about it. Perfect. Michael, so I'm going to ask you the last question. I know you're a policy guy. This is a little bit away. I mean, you know what's happening in New York City now. You know, I mean, tank real estate is tanking, volatility in Wall Street, fear of recession banking prices you hear it you know i mean you're an investment investor yourself so let me ask you now you know i don't mean to take it democratically or republican but do you think the policies that are in place right now is it hurting new york city i'm i'm only specifically talking about new york city you know what is your opinion like your views on what's going on you know in terms of policies and where the new york city market is heading well, I can only tell you that it is depressing. Uh, you have to understand, Ronald Reagan said it best. The answers are all simple. We know the answers. They're just not easy. In New York in particular, it mm -hmm. was considered ungovernable when Giuliani won the election. Right. Giuliani applied the broken windows theory on crime, which says go after the small crimes and the big crimes will moderate. They'll come down. Heather McDonald wrote a book, several books, but she points out quite properly that the answer to crime, I mean, obviously, the number one biggest answer is broken homes. Right. Uh, no father in the household. But that's the solution there, very different. The, the answer to policing and crime is the punishment has to be certain and swift. It doesn't have to be severe. Politicians, when there's a crime, they lengthen the sentences. That doesn't do any good. The answer is make people know there's a price to pay when you jump a turnstile, when you right. walk out of Bloomingdale's with a sweater shoved under your coat. It's not that you have to lock them up for five years, but they must pay a price. And Giuliani took what was considered an ungovernable city 
and made it a shining city on the hill. Correct. I mean, the crime rate, the real estate values, the quality of life, there's nothing in New York that did not improve. Bloomberg, although a bit quirky, you know, the trans fat mayor who's, I mean, you know, he has a lot of shortcomings, but at least in a general way, he pursued Giuliani's policies and New York was at peace for Giuliani's eight years and for his 12. Right. Now, you would think that voters would understand that. Instead, they elect de Blasio, who takes them right back to the bad old days. And you're seeing the result now with crime and with real estate values and with the exodus from New York. But this time, New York and, and then Adams, who's no better than de Blasio, you will see it may never recover. All the cultural institutions, which were funded by the billionaires, uh, they're going to lose funding. Uh, it, it's all going to Texas, Miami, and the South. Yeah. Where you, where you can walk out of your house and not worry about being mugged. Uh, and, and that money, I mean, if you think about it, New York City, I believe last year, lost $21 billion in tax revenue from people who moved out. And they're not coming back. You're going to see the cultural centers of Miami and Austin and Dallas grow exponentially. And the hospitals. I mean, New York was a great medical center and still is. But I believe that their failure to, to enforce the law, mm -hmm. their progressive woke ideas are going to corrupt all the cultural, medical, all the great institutions that they have. And it's shameful. It's shameful. It's not as if this is a COVID crisis that came out of nowhere. I mean, that nobody could prevent against. Correct. This was easily for... It, it, the, just remember what Reagan said. It's so true. The answers are all simple. They're just not easy. For whatever reason, for the life of me, how could you let a teacher's union corrupt the education of children? You have children, most of them, 80% of the children can't read or, or at grade level. Yep. You know, when will people open their eyes and say something's wrong here? It's funny, they understand a monopoly in business leads to uh, lethargy, it leads to mediocrity, it leads to a lot of bad things. But they don't understand a monopoly in education it has led us to all of those failures. See, also so here's the thing. The point you know. is, New York, having seen what happened when Giuliani came and still going back to the bad old days, says to me, there's something alluring about this siren song of a woke or liberal message that just attracts people. And unfortunately, it's like heroin. You know, once they've tasted it, it destroys them.
it's it's very sad, you know, and also I was reading at some polls. So Connecticut is 99% Democrat, as well, and whereas New York City is 95. I mean, I don't care who you elect, Trump, Biden, DeSantis. The question is, you have to elect someone who does good for the country, for the city, for the people. And it is very sad to see what New York City was two years ago. I mean, you know, I'm in real estate and what it has become now. As you said, I also don't think it's going to take a long time for it to come back if it comes back, you know, and it's very sad. Well, let me give you some advice. In real estate, there are numerous things, declining interest rates that can create a wind at your back. I mean, right now, interest rates are going up, so right. you've got a headwind. But, and you can make money given the right deal anywhere. Right. But if you go to Florida, if you go to Texas, if you go to Tennessee, you've got a wind at your back. If you try to do deals in New York, you've got a gale force wind in your face. I mean, they changed laws, which I, I knew a guy had a $50 million portfolio. Mm -hmm of rent-controlled apartments, but they were right near the limit where rent, where they were going over 2,500 a month and rent control would be dropped. City Council passed a law saying that they're staying under rent control. His $50 million became worth 25 overnight, wow. maybe less. Just overnight, because they passed this crazy rent control law. That is what they do in the woke society. See California for details. Well, Michael, let's hope for the best. You know, uh, I know we have uh, your business schedule, so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, finish this podcast. Uh, sorry to our audience for the uh, couple of glitches we had on our end. And uh, Michael, we want to thank you very much for being our guest. You're you're very uh, you're very wise. I look up to you, you know, for a lot of things. And uh, once again, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for being here. Yeah, I enjoyed it, and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Thank you so much, Michael. You have a All great right, day. Sir. Have a good day. Bye bye, sir. Bye bye. Bye bye.